You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Welcome. Thanks. Glad to see everybody. Glad you're here. Um, It is my privilege and pleasure to introduce Dr. Dan Seidel before we begin in a prayer. Dan is close friend of the Advent, known of him for several years. I used to work with Zach Hicks, our canon for liturgy and worship back there at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. Um, Dan uh, lives in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, happily married, or happily married. I'm happy. Three years, fair enough. Three grown children. Um, uh, starting a PhD program next fall. This is very fresh information from Drew University in New Jersey. So he'll be a commuting student, among other things, um, to, uh, to go with his, uh, his work as an art critic and a curator to get a PhD in theology. Uh, my comment as an aside, if you've read some of Dan's books or heard him uh, speak or preach, a unique voice, and that's easily said and overplayed too often as you're introducing a speaker, uh, but in Dan's case, it's really true. Someone who's a unique voice, not just in art generally, but in modern art specifically, and resonating with the themes, this is something I didn't appreciate in any way, shape, or form until I met you, Dan. Um, that modern art from your book, Who's Afraid of Modern Art? You can look at the themes, that's what I'm looking forward to tonight, of displacement, death, loneliness, despair, sometimes meted through an absurd medium. You look at something, it just looks just absurd. Or you might even say scandalous. And then the language of the gospel, which is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's also known as a scandal, comes immediately to mind. So the theology of the cross meeting modern art. Who would have thought it? And here we are on Linden Avenue with Dr. Dan I'm really glad you're here. Thank you. May I pray? May I pray for it? Please. Gracious Father, thank you for Dan, for his unique word, um, for his ministry among us. Um, be with us now and just give us a great evening. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Dan. Turn the lights down. If you need something, just holler. Okay. I'm going to take a quick picture. Prove to my wife I do this periodically. <laughs> <laughs> a picture of people to prove to my wife where I'm at and that people actually show up. <laughs> she always gets a kick out of it. She's mildly humored by the fact that people actually listen to what I have to say. So thank you for coming tonight. Um, the remarks that I've planned are focus on my interest in modern art and why I'm interested in it and try to present to you a way to think about modern art that might be a different perspective, uh, might be a way for you to, to appreciate it without having to like it. Um, and perhaps it, it, may, it may give you a better, um, a better understanding, um, but at least you will, have an un, you will have a better awareness of why I'm so attracted to it and why I've been called to uh, devote my life to thinking about modern art. And we'll talk about what that, is, what that is and how that's different than classical Renaissance art, for example, and how it develops and what I have seen are very resonant theological themes that are um, um, 
that I think are that I think often get overlooked um, by uh, by art critics and art historians and and curators. So this is me in 1989. Um, my my wife now, my girlfriend at the time, who was visiting me in graduate school, I was going to graduate school to study art history at the State University of New York in Stony Brook. Um, we were at the Metropolitan Museum, and I was, she took a photograph of me standing in front of a Jackson Pollock painting, Autumn Rhythm, and after she took this picture, Oh, she, she, she loves this picture because I have long hair. <laughs> she loves my long hair. She does not like my hair like this. And she always, oh, I wish you had your hair. I wish I had that too. <laughs> Younger days. Um, after she snaps the picture, she asks me, what makes this art? Just a simple question. Two Nebraskans. She grew up in a very small town in Nebraska. I grew up in Lincoln, which, I mean, they're all small towns in Nebraska. And there was no reason for me to be interested in art. I wasn't around high culture. I wasn't around the arts. Uh, my, my conversion to art came in the library reading, um, reading an art critic, um, writing about modern contemporary art. And at that moment, I felt this was pretty amazing that you could write this about art and I didn't understand it and I had all these questions and Pollock was one of the painters that I was trying to figure out. By this time I had already been, I had been taking seminars my first semester in graduate school in 1989. I was full of theory, I was full of all this, but my wife's question, this honest direct question with that painting, what makes that art? stuck with me because all of my theory and all the kind of highfalutin stuff that I could offer just fell flat and it didn't connect with me when I was trying to explain this to my wife who was not asking me in a skeptical way she just wanted to know what makes it art and I've never forgotten that question and I always think about it what makes that art what makes a work of art a work of art what is amazing to me and fills me with awe and wonder is the fact that a person can go into a studio, load up a brush, pigment, and smear it across a canvas, and to believe that doing that matters, that it's worth doing. And that it's not just worth doing theoretically, but that it's worth doing in terms of spending a lot of money on those materials, making that work with then the desire to show it to others with the hope that it means something to someone else, that it's possible that it can mean some something to someone else. And so a painter like Jackson Pollock, no matter how the work, the dripping the paintings, why do that? And why do it day after day after day? Why believe that those actions matter? That they matter personally. It gets one up in the morning, which is significant. But then there are also those 
that whose lives are given depth and texture and significance somehow it speaks in some way to them that is incredible to me so whether it's Jackson Pollock generating these these poured paintings in his in his um, in his barn uh, in the Springs Long Island in the late 1940s or the paintings that are here in our in the in the room generated by a man who has nothing but a desire to create and to make, but then not just to make and to hoard, but to make and to share. Something so personal and vulnerable of loading a brush up with paint, something that maybe we've done as kids, but that we've grown out of. We've done some arts and crafts as kids, but then we go off and we do big girl and big big boy things. We make livings, we do the practical things. And then there just sits this very impractical, fragile, vulnerable, absurd practice that some people devote their lives to. And that's fascinating to me. And I grew up in a context in which I was outside of it enough to, to keep, to have an outsider status or to feel like that wonder that it isn't, as, it isn't natural to me. And so I'm always thinking about my wife's question, what makes it art? Why? Maybe you know that Michelangelo's Sistine Ceiling is art and that Leonardo's Mona Lisa is art. But that, don't know. And so I've spent much of my life devoted to looking at and thinking about works of art that many people don't believe is art. Don't know how and why. And I've done so from a perspective of not just a person who is passionately interested in the visual arts and trying to figure out why and to pursue that question. What makes it art? Why does this painting or that work of art continue over time to compel interest? But I also did so as a Christian, as somebody who was interested not just in, in being a Christian and doing what I was doing as a profession, but trying to find ways that they interact in some sense. How do I think, how do I think about this in relationship to not just my Christian faith, but how I understand and how I believe the world to be made and stitched together? and where value and meaning and significance is, not just in terms of, of artistic significance or professional significance, but existential significance, theological significance. And those questions are questions that I continue to think about and they continue to bump up against each other. So I love Jesus and I love Jackson Pollock and I try to figure out like what and sometimes if I'm honest with myself I go back and forth I'm liking Jackson Pollock a little bit more than I'm liking Jesus or I'm liking Jesus a little bit more than I'm liking Jackson Pollock and trying to figure out what that means and why as a Christian I've been called to do this thing this strange thing that I do one of the places where I learned it 
I practiced it was at this museum, the Sheldon Museum of Art, which is the University Art Museum at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Happened to be my hometown museum, which I was very fortunate to be able to go back to and to serve as the curator. So I oversaw exhibitions. Um, I worked with artists. I used our, I used this um, very strong collection, permanent collection of 19th, 20th century American art. And I programmed, curated 12 to 15 exhibitions a year. And I, I watched and understood how different types of people interacted in that museum. It served in many ways as a secular church. It was a place where people were going to get comfort for a, some kind of spiritual experience, not really knowing exactly what would happen. There were those, there were seekers, those that wanted to be moved by art, but didn't quite know how and why. There were skeptics, often the spouses of, of uh, those that I would work with at the museum, um, <laughs> who were dragged to the museum for this event, and they were trying to figure out why they were there or why these things were on the wall. And I had enough and continue to have enough of the, my evangelical DNA that I wanted was hoping I could, there was something I could say that could convert someone, con convert the skeptical in some way to give them perhaps just a different way of, of approaching the work. But one of the things I also discovered was that many people go to museums thinking that there was a secret that everybody else has. And what I found in the groups that I would give tours, so I would, I would work I would work for several years on a project and present the project and I would give tours and talks and I would talk to high school kids or I would talk to the undergraduates on campus, I would talk, talk to the art majors, I would talk to graduate students, I would talk to the docents who would then have to figure out how to talk about it to their fourth and fifth grade kids they were giving tours. But each of those groups, I would try, I would find a, try to find a person that I felt they didn't think they could understand it and that there was something that they were missing that everybody else had. And what I usually found, and I would ask them questions, and what I usually found is that you didn't need to know some sort of secret, some the, the artist's life or the historical context or some sophisticated theology or theory or philosophy, but that there was some, if you allowed, if you allowed the work itself, the line and the form and the color, the image, and you got in a ballpark, an emotional resonance that was kind of in, the, in, that, in that ballpark. And, it, and that, for me, the, the 25 years, 30 years that I've been doing this, I have I have found that I have found that the relationships that I have with works of art are not on that intellectual theoretical level. They're on the lived existential level, a level that I can't necessarily articulate through my role as a historian or as a curator. But that I am when I'm most honest I talk about it as a, as simply a, a suffering human being, a suffering, fallible, hopeful, desiring human being, 
And the, one of the things I've learned is that an artist doesn't make a work of art for an art historian or a philosopher, uh, for a philosopher or a theoretician or a curator. He or she makes a work of art for a heart, a, a suffering, hoping, loving heart that stands before that painting or that work of art and is addressed by that painting. That's, that's what the artist in some way has in mind. The, way, the reason why those works, those paintings hang on a wall is for a human being to be addressed by them. How they're addressed and how they insinuate themselves into your lives are your reasons and your reasons alone. There are, there are particular relationships that I have with works of art and I, could, I can show you particular works but I won't tell you why. That's, that's mine. And when I go to the Museum of Modern Art or when I go to the Met, there are, there are a few paintings that I will go look at and I will go look at it in many ways as a, as a kind of private devotional. I may talk about them in my classes but I won't talk about them at the level that I'm that I'm present with them. And what I hope to be able to do in the work that I do, in the curatorial work, the classroom work, in this context, is to just open up space for the potential for any work of art to breathe, to have, for you possibly to have some kind of, of relationship uh, with a work of art. And the difficulty is that we often expect that the kind of relationship we're going to have is going to be a, the sky's part and you get weak in the knees and you fall down. But most of us, we don't have religious experiences like that. Our Christian life is filled with like the mundanities of griping and moaning at our kids to get them dressed to get to church and dealing with Birmingham traffic and doing all the kinds of things. Like that's where the Christian life is lived out. It's rarely lived out on Mount Athos. It's rarely lived out in those those moments, and I think the experiencing of art is that way as well. We want it and think that there's another kind of person that, that, that has another kind of experience, but that's, that's not the case. And so there's, a, there's, an, there's an aspect of, of, um, of a work of art insinuating itself into our imagination that, um, that I find to be the, to be what the visual arts are about, and the theory and the philosophy and the theology and all the kinds of ways to conceptualize it is simply to try to find a certain kind of language that can create that space so that you understand this, some get a sense of the significance of it in some way, or the potential significance of it, and the freedom not to be moved by it, the freedom not to like it. A freedom to say, I understand that Leonardo's Mona Lisa does what it does. It is what it is. But it's not. It's not. It's not mine. This work is mine. This work is a work I have a particular relationship with. And that to me is, is what, I, what fascinates me about art. I will talk to my students, my arrangement with at King's College is that I will go up to New York three times a semester for one week periods. So 
we'll have an intense period of time, three hours a night for the week, and then I'm gone. I give them assignments. When I come back the first day, and Monday I'll be in, in New York City again, and I'll ask the students, the first thing I'll ask them is, what works of art, what poems, what paintings, what television shows, what works of creative art have you discovered since we last met? And that to me is, a, is so wonderful. The potential to discover something new. The potential to go to the Birmingham Museum and go to an exhibition and to, and to imagine. It's quite possible I may see something that will change me. It may change me for the afternoon. It may change me for longer. I don't know. There is something, there's some song, a film, a poem, a painting that is waiting for me to discover it, is, is going to find me. And that is what makes the experience of art and how art in general can insinuate itself into your life, the expectation. The, the potential that you may hear something, see something, experience something that changes you. And that for me is what I've tried to keep open for my students. But to keep open for my students, but to keep open for me. It's the means by which I think about what will happen tomorrow or when I go to this museum, what will what might I be able to um, discover? So the work that I do is I stand in front of paintings and talk, and I use words. This happens to be taken from the last time I was in Birmingham, an exhibition at the Abram Engels um, Art Center at UAB, and I've become very sensitive particularly from my experience of working as a curator in the museum, very sensitive to the words that I use around works of art. Because it's the language that's going to, can create a context that opens up the space for the work, that allows it to breathe, or it can suffocate it and tighten it up. It can tighten it up and make it inaccessible through excessive theoretical and philosophical language. It can it can tighten it up by just simply being reduced to the biography of the artist. And so the goal, my goal is to find language that opens up the work, makes it evocative and potential for others to be able to, to, be able to see it. One of the challenges that I deal with, and I mentioned this um, in my talk in the Dean's class, is that by nature the work that I'm show that I show is a fiction. It doesn't exist. These are this is a a bad photograph of a bad reproduction projected on a on a screen that isn't the painting. I have to talk about works of art that aren't the work of art. I have to use this visual cue, but I also then have to use language to be able to create a context in which there's potential for you to be experienced, that you can, for you to experience it. 
Unlike a literate, an English literature professor who will give you a poem, hand out a poem, hand out one of Wordsworth's poems, and for the most part, that's how Wordsworth intended you to experience it. Could be handwritten, could be typewritten. Not so for a painting. The painting exists in one place. And therein is part of its, the challenges. It's a single artifact. It's an artifact that's commissioned, collected, owned. But it's also what makes, makes that work, the scarcity of it, the fact that it is an artifact that, that can be destroyed that by virtue of the fact that it continues to exist is a bit of a miracle and that it passes through hands over time. One of the wonderful things that museum professionals love is the tombstone information, the so-called tombstone information in a museum exhibition where you have the wall label and you see where the work came from, its provenance. And so I will go to a museum collection and I will see, it will give you, if it's part of the museum's permanent collection, it will give you the year it entered. And that, each institution has its own history of, of, the, of those artifacts as, as signs and sacraments of that period. Who acquired that work? Whose efforts? Whose efforts long forgotten, made it possible for that work to be there at that moment for me to stand before it. And I tell my students when we go, one of the blessings of teaching at King's College is that we go to the museums and we will always go to the Museum of Modern Art. And before I let them go into, the, into this permanent collection space, I will remind them that those paintings were painted by painters that had no idea that they would be seen in this context. And yet, they're there. Those paintings, you stand before one of those paintings. The painting was painted in 1888. And for that moment, that painting exists only for your eyes. Nowhere else in the world except now at this moment and that to me is incredible and that's one of the things that aspect of time in the present and the interaction of this individual standing before it is one of the powerful dynamics that emerges in the history of modernism that is in this, the personal relationship with the work is intensified So one of the things I want to talk about, I want to, the aspect in terms of modern art. Modern art begins in many ways in, the, in which art is operating in a secular context. Secular meaning outside the context of the church. So in the development of the Western uh, pictorial tradition, the Western artistic tradition, it develops within the context of the church. It's, it, it's used for Bible illumination, used for its liturgical furniture, it's altarpieces, it's 
decorations of the baptistry, it's, or baptismal fonts, it's attached to the furniture of the church. And its function, its subject matter, is liturgical and sacramental. And those that have relationships to it have relationships to it because they're going in and participating in worship. Just so happens that there's a, a painting by Giotto or a painting by Piero della Francesca there or another great Renaissance painter. It's a great manifestation of simply liturgical furniture the church is needed to have to be able to do what they were doing to mark the, the church calendar. So within that context, the artist is given commissions. So those artists that are working during that period are, don't have a studio in which they go in and they make whatever they want. They have a studio, and if they're fortunate to have a studio, it's because they have clients. They have business. They have commissions, often with contracts. Okay, we want you to do an altarpiece. We want it to be this, these dimensions. We want you to use... Oh, by the way, the donors need to be included in one of the, in one of the wings. You know, you need to have... We want to have... It needs to be painted 90% by the master of the studio. You know, all of those things. Within that context, that's the, the, the unique achievement. So the unique achievement of, these, of, the great, of many of the great Renaissance works is that within those structures and limitations, tremendous individuality and creativity emerge. But what's set up is the church is the major patron of the work of art and so the content is going to be theologically based spiritually based and it's going to also be vetted censored what luther ushers in with the reformation with with the let's say the the movement of the visual arts from the church outside of the church is the movement of artistic practice now taking place not within the confines of commissions the church and church professionals but in the marketplace in the secular world that opens that up now what is amazing and fascinating to me is that it doesn't mean that that's that christian subject matter is eliminated it just begins to work differently it, works in a, in, a, in a greater or lesser idiosyncratic individualistic way. And so a secular painter like Jacques-Louis David painting at the cusp of the French Revolution is painting a thoroughly secular painting. This is the death of Socrates. And Socrates, as you know, his pursuit of truth was so relentless that the fathers in the city of Athens couldn't tolerate him. And his relentless pursuit of truth was undermining the polis. And so the fathers of Athens said, either go into exile or commit suicide. So, as you know, he takes hemlock and commits suicide. David, 
It's a, it's a well-known story, well-known subject matter, a secular theology. Okay? So you have, you have, the, you have the, the textual tradition, just like the biblical tradition. David's task is to represent it in a dynamic and, and unique way. What moment do you focus on? So for a narrative, a story, and it's the same for the biblical narratives, painting is a static image, is a static art. You have to pick a moment. What moment will you? And that moment interprets the story. It's the emphasis of the story. And so what David is doing is he's focusing on the moment. What moment? It's the moment that Socrates is taking the cup of hemlock. Now, David is emphasizing his understanding and knowledge of classical antiquity. Socrates' bust looks like he's been doing a lot of working out. <laughs> it's based, based on classical Greek torso and probably modeled on a particular torso, the Apollo Belvedere, which was the torso that was very well known in the modern world, in the Bel Belvedere collection in Italy. It's something that he would have seen in Rome, and he's making reference to it. The togas, the, the various kinds of accoutrement. However, David, secular, thoroughly secular artist, communicating a secular theme. And yet, the moment he chooses, this moment, is a Eucharistic moment. Those hands. Socrates taking the cup. A cup of death finishing it to the dregs. Socrates is the enlightenment Jesus. And, and what David is doing is knowing, not only do, do the viewers of this painting, would they be thoroughly familiar with the story of Socrates and also know other academic artists' representation of the subject. So David has to cut through familiarity to make it new and fresh and powerful and to connect emotionally but to connect emotionally he's using Christian imagery to connect emotionally so now the death of Socrates is not just a philosopher it is Jesus and his disciples it is Socrates and his half enlightened disciples who don't understand, who are experiencing grief in all kinds of different ways. It is, it, it is David's attempt to emphasize not just an idea that Socrates is the new Jesus, but, that, but to make the painting compelling emotionally, what he focuses on 
is using Christian iconography and Christian imagery, even if it's just the formal components, because the viewers are, their DNA has been, they've been wired in that manner. But this is taking place outside the context of the Mass, outside the context of the church. But there Jesus is, and haunting, there, out in the world. And I would suggest to you what is so interesting to me about the development of modern art and the history of modern artistic practice is that Jesus and Christian imagery is kind of kicked out of the church, or you could say that the unified image of Jesus, a doctrinal Jesus that is operative in the context of the church, however you want to describe that, that, that mosaic, if you want to use the language of Irenaeus, this mosaic of Jesus is shattered, and it's broken, and it's dispersed out into the secular world. But it's bits of Jesus. Jesus is out there. All of the, the iconography, the, um, the symbolism, the imagery, is still part of the cultural landscape. And artists are using it. They're, just, they're not using it in the context to emphasize a particular... They're not using it in the context of the church, and it's not operating in terms of church dogma. It's doing something else. But I, one of the things that interests me is, even though what it's doing is doing something unorthodox, that's still Jesus there. That's still Jesus out there operating. And I would suggest that a little bit of Jesus, a fragment of Jesus, is still more than enough that you need. It's the, it's the evidence that we have of the Gospels. Of nobody understands. Nobody understands. The bleeding woman who reaches out for the hem of Jesus' garment doesn't understand the dogma and the theology of the hypostatic union and doesn't understand doesn't have the Council of Chalcedon. It doesn't have any of that stuff. All she does is know that whatever hope I have, whatever that means, whether it's stopping bleeding and whatever it is spiritually, if I just reach out and touch the hem of his garment, that's enough. And in many ways, one of the things I've, that I want to look at in, the, in modern art, and particularly in the representation of, of Christian imagery, is that it's that's the hems of the garment. And that's still tracked. Now, what's interesting is that a lot of people overlook that and they don't focus on that. And so one of the things that I'm interested in is focusing on that. When a push comes to shove, a secular artist who's not operating any faith traditions wants to create a powerful connection, they will often use the imagery of the crucifixion. That the crucifixion is still operating as a powerful image or an artist almost a a reverse component in many ways to David is this painting by Gustave Courbet the burial at Arnon oh not painted in 1949 1849 um <laughs> Corbet is, Jesus is present. Jesus is present as a 
as a liturgical accoutrement. that represents the clerics, the church, overseeing the ceremony of an anonymous person in this rural area in the Franche-Comté, outside of Paris. It's actually where Corbet grew up. All of these people are portraits. People that Corbet grew up with and knew It's a gigantic painting. I'll give you just a photograph. It's at the um, uh, Musée d'Orsay in Paris. It is a radically non-Christian. You could even say it's an atheistic painting, and yet its power depends upon understanding what is absent. So, what is absent? is any kind of spiritual focus. Traditional paintings in the Renaissance and the Baroque of burials always emphasized the movement of the spirit of the departed into heaven. It was a two-realm. Here is earth. The spirit of the dead is going up into the arms, into the, into the bosom of, of Jesus, What Courbet is giving us is a painting in which religion, the professionals, oversee, but that there isn't a spiritual presence. It's taken away. The center of the painting, and this is a, I emphasize the size of the painting because the hole in the ground is gigantic, and that's the, cent- that's the focal point. Everything is below the horizon except the crucifix that is there, but it's there, you could say, in a powerless way. I've always been struck couple things that I, that I have in mind when I, when I see this hole in the ground. I think about the movie Amadeus, when Mozart is dead, and you have the soundtrack of, of, um, of his mass, and they've just wrapped him up, dumped him in a hole, poured some lime on him, and that's it. Mozart just dumped in a hole in the ground. Or I think about the difficulty of and the, the challenges of burying a pet, a dog or a cat, with your children. And they ask, Daddy, is, is Sasha going to be in heaven with us? And what do you, you figure out something to say that helps them not fall to pieces? Where's, where is uncle so-and-so going to be? Whatever I say to my child about where the cat is, is what these people are trying to convince themselves. That's Courbet's point. There's nothing. Now, on, 
But what Courbet's very secular atheistic painting depends upon is a robust spiritual presence it's a, he, that he has to then subtract. The power of the painting is that he's taking all of that away. And yet, one of the things he's keeping, and I think I always think about this, this is a Holy Saturday painting. It's a painting that makes you sit with death. Not move too quickly. Not move too quickly on to the resurrection or the kinds of statements that we will often get or we will give to those who've just lost a loved one. They're in a better place. Where oftentimes what the person wants to experience is anger. They're gone. <laughs> Let me live with that. They're gone. And that aspect of death, of letting Holy Saturday go a little bit longer, that Jesus actually was dead, dead, dead. That Jesus, before the tomb of Lazarus, weeps. There is something, there is something I find that in Corbet's radical negativity that he's actually cleared out some things that allows us to feel the emptiness that death really is. And that the emptiness of death that Jesus actually experienced. And, that, and that's what makes the power of of the question, death, where is thy sting? It stings. It's awful. And yet, somehow and in some way, Christ is there for us. Even if he is radically absent here. Now, one of the things in moving, in moving out into the secular realm, what the artist then has to do. The artist has, the artist now is making, is making work on spec. There aren't commissions because there aren't institutions. The work is being made first and then it is going to find a home. Which means then the relationship between the work is going to be a relationship that's not institutionally, that doesn't start institutionally sanctioned by the church or the state. It's going to start with an individual connection, which is going to further personalize the relationship of the viewer collector to the work. Does that make sense? So, Artists then are going to produce work. They can make anything they want. But they have to make something. And they have to make something with the various resources that they have, the various traditions that they have, etc. But it is now needs to be made first, and then it finds a collector. What is so interesting to me, and an artist that I'll talk about in a little bit, Edvard Munch, the Munch Museum in Oslo 
for example, has about 3,000 works in its permanent collection. And those 3,000 works, most of them, came out of Munch's studio after he died. Now, that's inventory. <laughs> that wasn't moved. Unsold inventory. Or work that he didn't want to sell. Why make it? What are the percentages of continuing to make paintings for which at the end of your life you have 3,000 with you? Like in many, many contexts, that's just a failure. But that gives you a sense of the kind of the precariousness of making work and finding a buyer, but then also the fact that it's finding a buyer isn't the ultimate purpose. They're necessary to be able to keep the lights on and to pay the rent and to be able to do what needs to be done, but there's something else. There's some other reason to make the work. And that is so interesting to me, that, that connection of, of the financial and market economic that painting is so fraught with those structural concerns of the market economics and yet the artists are doing them doing it for something else there's something else so this idea of making connections so one of the things that begins to emphasize in the in the academic tradition the, there was a hierarchy of genres. So subject matter, there was an impo more important subject matter to the least important. The most important, history and religious paintings. The death of Socrates and Christ on the cross or the raising of Lazarus or any religious or mythological historical scene, that's the most important. And they're the largest ones. They're the biggest ones. That's what makes Courbet's burial at Arnaud shocking. That there's nothing glorifying. It's not a history painting or a religious painting. It's, in fact, an anti-religious painting. Then is then portraiture. And then historiated landscape, which means a landscape painting that serves as a backdrop for a classical or biblical story. And then domestic scenes, genre scenes of home and hearth, often Moms with their children making dinner. And then the last, still life. Flowers. Bowl of fruit. What is interesting is that as modernism develops, it's the still life that becomes most important. It's the intimate daily objects that we simply use and we don't see as having exalted importance. And so Manet, at the end of his life, begins painting these really remarkable still lives of a perspective that is so interesting. So here's this bunch of asparagus. Like, painting itself is a rather strange and vulnerable practice, particularly for those painters that are operating outside the academic and state structure. whose work were getting rejected by the annual salons and the, and the official exhibitions. But then to make asparagus, that's, that's, that's an absurd practice of an absurd 
subject. You can't spiritualize the bunch of asparagus. You can. Yeah, I'm going to... Until now. And so now I'm going to start. Ready? So he had a collector come by his studio and she fell in love with that. And she acquired it. About a week later, there's a knock at her door and a messenger gives her a package and says, this is from Monsieur Manet. And what it is, is this. It is a little painting of a single stalk of asparagus with a note attached to it that says, you forgot one. (laughs) So you go from Michelangelo's Sistine Ceiling or Michelangelo's Divine Judgment, you have big, celebratory, powerful, allegorical pictures, and now we have a little painting of asparagus with that little note of a spear that you forgot one. That painting is a fragment of the world, just a bit. And that painting is not perfecting nature, it's doing what it's can somehow to represent it in some little way. I'm going to give you, this is in the Musée d'Orsay, this is a, a painting of a lemon on a platter that Monet painted, and then this asparagus. And I have to say, I really don't like the frames. My urge as a curator is to take out the frame and to see the, see the canvas and to see it without the gilded, because it kind of gilds the lily a little bit, or it kind of makes it more important than it is. It's just a very humble painting. Now, one of the things that's so interesting about in the Renaissance and the Baroque and the classical tradition is that painting is supposed to be timeless. So paintings occur in the classical tradition, they occur at the high noon period. The light is always clean, it doesn't cast shadows, because shadows emphasize what? The passage of time. And painting can't depict time because it's frozen. However, what is so interesting is that in the development of modern artistic practice, painters engage time. Instead of freezing time, giving you an ideal no time, they engage time, engage place. And so Monet not painting in the studio. So an academic painter would, be, would go to Rome and go to, go to Italy and make sketches of the countryside and then in his notebook go and come back to his studio and spend the rest of his career when he had to make landscapes just working from those, working from the sketches. He would not go out into the French landscape or the British landscape. It was Rome, it was Italy. It was the ideal context. But now Monet is taking the canvas out into the, out into nature, outside the studio, which means out into the heat, the cold, the wind, the bugs, the sun, the rain, the elements, for which then the painter has to do battle, has to interact. And what Monet is doing 
What Monet is interested in is capturing the effects of light on the water, on haystacks. The problem with that, of course, is that you go out at 7 in the morning or 8 in the morning to catch the light. What is happening at that time? All the time. It's changing, right? Which means then the colors are changing. Everything's changing. It's all flux. But Monet goes out there to try to get it down as quickly as possible. And so the paint strokes. Now that there's, there's more energy, there's a rush. He's trying to get the color. He's trying to get it before it disappears. And so what Monet discovers is, I just can't make, paint one painting of the haystacks. I have to do it not at 9 o'clock in the morning, but I have to do it also at noon. I have to do it at 3 o'clock. I have to do it in the fall, in the winter, in the summer. And so Monet in the 1890s, from 1890 to 1891, he paints dozens and dozens of haystacks. Glimpses and fragments at this time and that time, which he then wants to, ex to present and exhibit together. What is a haystack? What is Monet's representation of that haystack? All of these. And also even that doesn't, doesn't include the potential. So instead of painting, capturing the truth, painting is now just getting a little glimpse of it and hastily getting it before it disappears. I think about this. We live right across, we live right across the street from the ocean and we'll go, my wife and I will go over periodically to watch the sunrise and you go and you wait and you wait and you wait and all of a sudden it's just up. And if you move away, you, you've missed it. And I imagine Monet out there in the elements trying to get it down quickly before it, before it disappears. What's also interesting is that once time enters into it, once shadow time enters into it, death enters. Now, now painting enters the realm, the register of weakness and fragility and the passage of time and the quickness of time. We don't think time... One way to experience time and how time passes so quickly is not just to have children <laughs> and to watch them grow up but to try to capture the light in a painting. <laughs> the moments, the seconds are disappearing. And so the paintings now are looking different. Monet was accused of just throwing paint on the canvas, which of course he had to wait till Jackson Pollock for that to actually be more accurate. <laughs> but what Monet is doing, it's insubstantial. You don't have the drawing and the draftsmanship and the clarity and the substance that you have with David's paintings, for instance. Or even Courbet. Courbet paints the burial at all in his studio. Monet's out there, and the paintings now are starting to get, the space is starting to get shallow. You can see now they're becoming more and more abstract. Because Monet is trying to capture the light, and he has to work quickly and quickly and quickly. Here's a, here's a photograph I love of Paul Cezanne, who would take his canvas out and paint the landscape. What is interesting with the, what you see, begin to see with the haystacks, you begin to connect it, the development of abstraction 
in painting begins with the Impressionists. It begins with, and not just with the Impressionists, with painters going out into nature trying to represent what they are seeing. And what they end up experiencing and seeing is so much more complex and so much more difficult. And then the paintings become, are becoming more abstract over time. So within the modern condition, what interests me is that even though painters in the classical and the Renaissance tradition were painting theology, painting dogma that was prescribed within which they were working and interpreting and were being used then for public commemoration and public experience, the artists in the modern condition with working with a blank canvas can do anything, can make anything. And we think, well, theology is not a part of it. But artist after artist after artist in making anything are making things that matter to them and continuing to work out. Ultimately, may not be recognized as such, but deeply theological questions. Who am I? Augustinian questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Rather than those questions, in many ways, answered at least within, proscribed within an institutional structure of the church, the artist is now theologizing in pain. Who am I? Why is what I'm doing important? And so what's interesting to me is the language of theology, of Christian theology, is very helpful for me to think about the theology that each artist is working with in terms of being an artist. Why? So even if David is bringing with him the forms of Christian iconography, I would suggest that painting itself continues to have those echoes and resonances of spiritual power and that somehow and in some way the artist is making some kind of stand. And sometimes that stand, like Edvard Munch, is simply to express the weakness and vulnerability of what it means to be a human being. Not aspire to be one of the Greek heroes, to do something heroic and to, be, and to, be, to have virtue, but to recognize the vulnerability and the brokenness. And Munch, in his notebooks, wrote, I make art, I, I make, I paint my soul's diary, and I paint in order to clarify who I am and to understand the world. And I hope that my work can be helpful for those who are doing the same. That's for whom he was making work. And this picture we know he painted several versions in part because it may, he, these works were acquired by collectors, he wanted to have it around. So he painted it again. 
But we see these images on coffee mugs. We see the whole Macaulay Colton, Colton thing, uh, <laughs> Home Alone. Um, but, you know, just a very childlike painting, but also a childlike painting that has a certain directness that addresses a certain core of humanity that we try to dress up. We prefer to think of ourselves as Achilles or Ajax or one of the great Greek heroes, but we're, we're this figure. And yet, we still can't. What makes painting so interesting is Munch is writing in his notebooks, this is how he thinks about painting. And painting helped him cope with his alcoholism, with the incredibly tragic life that he lived with and dealing with death um, of his mother and his older sister that never left him, trying to fill that hole that he could never fill. And then that painting goes for auction in 2013 for $130 million. And we go, what the heck? Is it worth that? How is, what is going on? And I have, this photograph is the power and the theology of glory of the auctioneer, the swashbuckling German Tobias Meyer, who's a, kind of an all-star in the auctioneering, who is preying upon individuals. He knows who they are that want to bid on it. And then this vulnerable painting that just looks so uncomfortable. <laughs> Wants to be anywhere but right there. Being bid on by these entrepreneurs who will then go celebrate afterwards. Celebrate Maybe the winner doesn't celebrate. <laughs> Maybe it's the ones who didn't, didn't get it, who didn't have to fork over $130 million. But most of all, when examples of modern art, this is kind of how we get it. We get it in our Facebook feed or whatever. It's like, painting goes for $130 million. And you go, oh, what in the world? Art's not worth that. And that's the, that's the realm in which, um, in which paintings operate. They continue to operate. Now, the childlike, the primitive, the, the naive drawing that we see in many um, works of, of modern art, the kind of things that our kid could do that, the kind of simplicity, the directness. Well, I've just, this is one of my kids. <laughs> this is our youngest. Um, he, and, th- and there was a reason why artists were deeply attracted to the, to the drawings of children, to the untrained, in part because what they had believed, what they had seen in the academic tradition, in the, say, particularly in the middle of the 19th century, was that the artists had become technicians, expert te- technicians, but in the process they've lost something of the life, of the texture of life, and that they wanted to get at that, that mystery of that, that what drawing was about, what the visual arts was about, was trying to represent this mystery. And that in the work of children, and in the work of those who are not trained, it is the power or the desire to represent powerful experiences, but not having the tools. And so what is so wonderful and charming about children's drawings 
isn't just because our, it's our kids and relatives that do it. It's that they have such powerful experiences of the world and they don't have the capacity to represent them. They're trying to find the way to do it. So my son draws his family. It's his universe, right? Like, what's God to him? What does God mean? God means the safety of my family. It means this, these people that I love, that love me, that, that I matter, that I matter to, that I understand. So there's mom. There's dad with the thinning hair. There's older brother, older sister, and then, and he's actually depicted his smile perfectly. But anyway, <laughs> this, is, this is his universe. But what's so charming about it is not the fact that, wow, he can, I can't do that. You know, you look at, wow, he's able to depict these people. Wow, it's the directness, it's the, it's the honesty, it's the vulnerability. And artist after artist begin to utilize, to unlearn the technology in order to open up a certain kind of honesty and directness. I've said this before, probably in the dean's class, there's, there, are, there, are, there, there, there are singer-songwriters that we listen to that we're moved by, but we wouldn't say that their, song, that their voices are beautiful. Bob Dylan's voice isn't beautiful. Johnny Cash's voice isn't beautiful. But there's something about the texture. There's something about the honesty. There's a certain directness and a power that's there that wouldn't get them on American Idol or the you know whatever those shows are. They're not a recording artist. They're, there's something about the depth of human experience. And what artists wanted was to recapture that enchantment. So in a funny kind of way, there is a in the, as modern art develops in the secular world it loses a kind of orthodox Christendom understanding of religion, but it catches it differently as a kind of spirituality, as a way of trying to engage and to trying to re-enchant the world, that the world is incredible and amazing, and that art should somehow be a response to, the fact, to that fact, that we're not experts, we're all like little kids trying to figure out how to do what we're doing here. And you have a painting like this by, uh, by Henri Matisse. Look at those three female nudes. Like one of the great achievements of Matisse is to completely de-eroticize the, the naked female body, which is it was a thing, because in the middle of the 19th century in Paris, in the academy, it was simply, the female nude was simply a way to be semi-pornographic, to provide the titillation for the male viewers. Matisse strips all of that away. And you have these three female figures hunched over a turtle. <laughs> the turtle has certain symbolic value of having kind of, of a certain kind of spiritual mystery. But what there seems to be is that there is a, there, there is a secret that we don't know. There's something that's there. We don't know it. We can't name it. And then you have this background. You have now completely shallow. Now what Matisse is attracted, in, attracted to or is the color, is the format, is the decoration. And it's not going to be too long where artists are going to say, can I make a powerful, can I produce a powerful painting 
with a powerful experience that doesn't need figures? What if it's just the green and the blue? Then we have Rothko. Right. So, and in that context, for a Rothko, for instance, or a Pollock, our experience in front of that painting isn't predicated upon our experience of a male or female nude, or a sunrise, or a landscape, or anything in nature that we've experienced that the painter is representing. It's its own thing. So instead of a painter, a, a painting of Niagara Falls, part of the power is Niagara Falls. Okay. But what do you do with the drip painting? What do you do with a painting that's just the green and the, and the blue? It's its own experience. It becomes its own sunrise. It's not dependent upon nature out there. And yet what the artist is using is nature. Artist is using minerals. Artist is using materials. The last couple more I want to show you real quickly. I don't want to, I want to give, have some time for us to talk. Um, it's painted by Munch. Munch was suffering from an eye disease, which was dramatically limiting his vision. If you can imagine a painter losing your eyesight. And Munch had a, it was a, it was a, a spot in his eyesight that blocked it, that blocked his seeing. So what he did is he painted a self-portrait in the mirror as he saw it. Not as he saw it as this painter with an incredible vision who's able to see things that we can't see. But a painter with vision who can't see things that we see. And so now what takes up the room is this diseased eye, the blockage. And the figure now is an emaciated figure because he can't see. And so the, uh, this other aspect of our human experience, our vulnerability and our fragility, painting is making reference to, and the focal point that painting, for any painter, it's paint on a flat surface. And this detail by the painter, by the abstract expressions, Clifford still emphasizes this. This is still the unpainted canvas. You see the brush strokes, the presence of the artist's hand. I want to show you just a, a couple works. I want to, this is an artist I've been working with for a number of years. He's based in L.A., Enrique Martinez Celaya. I don't want to focus. Some examples of him working in a studio. The privilege that I have is to be around his work while he's making it. And then the public presentation of the work. This is a gallery in Berlin. But I want to show you this. So he was doing a, he was, he had a, a couple years ago, he had a um, uh, professorship, visiting professorship at uh, Dartmouth. And they gave him a studio and he was doing some work for an exhibition and he was having in New York. And I had seen this painting. It was a really interesting painting. Now he's an atheist. None of his work has religious content. Yet much of his reading is religious reading philosophy shaped by Christianity, etc. But he painted this painting with this cross on a wall in this room. 
So I took a picture of it. I was interested in it. And uh, he said, I, when he was painting, he said, I, I don't quite know where it's going. I remember my mother having a crucifix in her, in her bedroom uh, growing up in, in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Um, I don't know. We'll see. I'm not quite sure. So I get back home. So I'd spent some time with him um, in Dartmouth. And I got back home, and a few days later, I get a photograph that he texts me. And it's this. He painted Jesus on the cross, with, even with a little placard. And I thought about it. I was struck with this. He said, I thought you might like this. You might be interested in this. The question is, does Jesus go on the cross? He puts Jesus on the cross. So here's, as I call it, smudgy Jesus on the cross. It's not Masaccio's or Grunewald's or the great Renaissance crucifix. And I wonder if this is, in this context, in, this, in the modern contemporary world, or for this artist, that's what he can do right now. It's smudgy Jesus. It's just a smudgy Jesus in the back, background. But there he is. There's Jesus in the background. He had an exhibition um, last year in Miami and I went to see it, and that's the painting now. He even painted over it, changed it from an interior now to a bed that seems to be in, a, in water. Crucifix is gone, smudgy Jesus is gone, but he's not gone, because I have reference, so he's there. So it's interesting in terms of when smudgy Jesus will reappear and how he reappear, that, that fragment that shard of Jesus that's there. And perhaps one of the things that I've been, I believe I've been called to do is to pay notice to that, those smudgy Jesuses, those places where the shards are, and maybe find ways to sweep them up or find ways to notice them and how Jesus is operating in those realms, those realms that are, that are not orthodox, but doing something. But somehow and in some way, Jesus remains, and Christian imagery remains a way to communicate and to express these basic questions of who I am, where did I come from, where am I going? So thank you. Yes, ma'am. Yes. What did you say about why you thought the, cro- the cross is there still? Well, the cross, right, the cross is there as that, is, as the, one of the, um, you know, it's on the pole, I don't know, I don't, I don't know the text. What's it called? The cruise the guy. The cruise, okay. So it's just a part of, it's just a piece of liturgical furniture, so they're just attending the, they're attending the funeral, but there isn't any, there's, the sense is that it's a, it's a, it's deprived of any kind of spiritual reference or any kind of spiritual ministering value. They're just attending there. There's kind of rote, but there it is. There is the crucifix. So actually putting it there makes more of a negative statement than if it wasn't even there. Well, it does. It does, but it's also, it's also ambivalent in the sense of there is a negative statement, the emptiness of the church, you could say, particularly. 
French Catholicism, which is its own kind of animal, particularly in the 19th century. But then also, there it is. There is Christ. And you, there is, the way that you look at it, you can actually, the way Courbet has placed it, has, can take it out of that liturgical furniture and onto the hill. <laughs> so there just kind of sits there and operates and hovers. And one of the things that I, that I think is important in terms of the arts in general, but, and it's frustrating for us, but I also think part of it is just absolutely wonderful, is that it's is the ambivalence of it, the, the realm of, of, the, of the index of meaning that you say, is Courbet looking positively or negatively? And I would say yes. <laughs> that there's, and that's part of how it, how it hits, and the fact that it's that it's that there is a that there's a breadth of experience that is is that song sad or happy? Yes. <laughs> there's they evolve. They're the complexities of those kinds of relationships that are there that that work on the work on us in terms of how we how we experience those works at that, at that time. But that, that's there, if that, if that makes sense. So one of the things I would say is the works can mean a particular painting or a particular song or something can land with all of you in very different ways. But it doesn't mean that all you're doing is imposing, it's not just a Rorschach test or that you know, you're just inventing those meanings. It's there in the DNA of the work. It's just being worked out in particular ways in your own particular experiences, if that makes sense, yeah. It's always struck me with that painting that the most prominent figure in terms of its relationship to the rest of the composition in the foreground is the dog, the time-tested symbol (laughs) of fidelity and faithfulness, absolutely. And his visual equivalent on the other side of the painting is the child. So there is, to me, something still hopeful. Without question, without question. Absolutely. The hope is, and the question for many of these artists, and many of the intellectuals is, God's somewhere. What they say, I know, is that he's not in the church there. He's not, and what they mean by that, is they mean, not in my local parish where I was abused by that priest, or that priest that was taking bribes. Wherever God is, God's not there. Maybe he's out in nature. Maybe he's in the studio. Maybe he's somewhere. But he's the church. The the Catholic church in France isn't where God is. Or God can't be overseeing the wars of the Reformation. There's no way that debates about Christ's presence are going to cause death and bloodshed. Whatever that's happening over there is an institutional thing. God's someplace else. And there is a desire to find God someplace else, a pure place, or someplace hope in children, or that this I, the kind of messianic hope in a future is something that painting will painting will take up. Yes, sir. The Davidic painting, and you mentioned the Eucharistic imagery mm-hmm. there, but to me, you've also got Michelangelo assisting. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I was just going to say that. And so you've Absolutely. got the creator who's taking death on himself for the sake of community. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just the power of those of hands that don't touch mm-hmm. and the power of the space 
the spacing, you know, you have that the spacing of God um, creating Adam. Absolutely, without question, without question, all of those resonances and part of the task of a painter like that, working in that tradition, is to hit as many of those those connections as possible. So that what is taking place is the painting is rattling around with all the references of Renaissance painting, of of classical literature, classical statuary, and it just creates a summary of culture in this one single painting. I have a question for you as a, as a teacher. When you said, said you charge your students with discovering something new yes. every week, in this day and age of addiction to media, um, <laughs> I think it gets more and more difficult. Do you see that in your students? Um, the kind of work that I, I mean, I, what I've done is I will, I'm particularly interested in painting, but I also know that when I say painting, I also want you to think about a Netflix television series or a documentary that you've seen or music that you listen to. And so for me, it's not, my desire isn't to preserve high culture or museum culture. It's, it's the means by which fine art or high art or whatever is the means by which I access all of the arts. And so students are, the, what I've noticed is their access to how, what it connects to them. As much as they say will love painting, it's the movie that they've seen. It's the music that they're listening to. And for me, the challenge then for me is to be able to make, not to pull them away from it, but for me to connect the painting to what's going on. And so, so for me, I don't, it's not like you've got to go to the museum, you've got to see this, you've got to tell me what you like. It's, that can be, you know, listening to this music can be, whatever music it is can at least let them be free enough that there's the potential that if they go to the Met or they go to the Museum of Modern Art or the Frick or whatever, or just the gallery, or go to their friend's studio and look at the work that a painting may do something, just because they're, they're used to seeing it as this, in the same register. So in many ways, their responsibility is on me to accommodate that, because I'm not interested in, in a kind of reactionary, conservative, you know, <laughs> no. because I'm just as bad as they are, actually. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so you mentioned a lot of how secular artists are incorporating these Christian themes into their work. And how I, I was especially thinking about how you talked about secular artists all hinting at Jesus and people being able to touch the hem of yeah. his garment. So do you think as Christians we should have a responsibility to portray the whole Jesus? And I'm thinking about, well, I don't know, this is kind of a two-part question. Do Christians have the responsibility to portray Christian themes fully? And then, as Christians, what kind of responsibility do we have to make good art? And there I'm thinking specifically about music and movies, because I see there's a real lack in mm. really good, still artistic movies, music, even, I mean, all kinds of art. couple ways. Um couple ways I can respond to that. One is, I don't know what the whole, what the whole Jesus is. And I don't think we have... I guess I'm getting at like evangelistic. Like should, yeah. as Christians, should we create art that's 
Okay. If I'm a... So... There is a... I go to Christian colleges and go and do studio critiques with a lot of... At a lot of Christian colleges, art students, where they do feel the pressure that every painting they make or every work has to have an evangelical, evangelistic message. And one of the, personally, my, um, my pastoral work for them is to lighten that load that they carry. Part of it, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a sociological and psychological challenge that art departments and Christian colleges face. That is, parents are spending $40,000 a year on tuition. Maybe if they go to Christian college, they should probably study something more practical. Or if it's not going to be practical, at least it should be missions-based. Okay? So, mom and dad are paying $40,000 a year for a child to go to Biola University in La Mirada, California and study art. And the child feels that burden. And so how does the child talk about it when they come home over Christmas break? Well, they talk about it in the context of missions. Talk about it in the context of evangelism. But dad, it's how I'm going to evangelize. It's my mission. It's the, and so that language then adds a kind of burden. The burden is the content of the work. You're thinking that the content of the work has to do that. But it doesn't have to. So one of the apocryphal stories that come up with Martin Luther, you know, there are millions of them. Um, A shoemaker asks Luther, what does it mean to be a Christian and be a shoemaker? And do you know what his response is? Make a good shoe and sell it at a good price. I think about that a lot when it comes to art. So in the context, let's say, what does it mean to make a good shoe? Well, making a good shoe means all kinds of things, right? What's a good sandal? What's a good high heel? What's a good, what's a good working boot? Well, there are all kinds of different genres. And also, in terms of what's a good shoe today is different than a good shoe in the 1940s. So what is a good shoe today? And, what, and then what also is what is a good shoe? If I'm a high, if I'm a, um, a haute couture designer, you know what a good shoe is? It's one of those things that nobody would wear ever. <laughs> That's what a good shoe is. There's nothing inherently Christian or unchristian from me. A comfortable shoe and a haute couture shoe. There isn't. And then the others sell at a good price. Well, what does that mean? Well, the whole economic structure. It's being aware of that, being aware of that, being aware of that structure and the fact that it's other sinful people and sinful fallen structures and it just you have to negotiate it. It's out there. So what does it mean? It means What's your vocation? Are you, do you drive a delivery truck? Well, do that to glory of God. That's your vocation. And you will evangelize. Mm-hmm. You may not know how it is, but you will. It just, that's how God is present in the world. Through our vocation. 
God is at work in the world through our vocation. But our vocation is, and how God is present in the world, we don't know. We stitch on the underside of the carpet. God is putting together this incredible symphony, and all we see are the bits and pieces of thread that don't make connections, that are tied awkwardly. And so there is, I think, a sense in which you can sin against your vocation. And sinning against your vocation is, is not allowing God to be able to do the work that God is gifting you to do. I don't know how I bear witness to Christ in what, I'm, what I do. All I, all I can do, all I try to do is to be faithful to that vocation as a Christian. and have faith that that is that that is enough when it and what it means is that it's it, it's the freedom to do or not to do you can make paintings that are inspired by scripture readings but the pressure of having to do it or the pressure of making work by all art department students are notorious for this they either have the pressure and it's like it's also like a typical evangelical thing you have the pressure of being solely evangelistic and making John 3.16 paintings and you know, saying, you know, I had this experience and this is the painting that, you know, and all of that sort of thing. But then on the other hand, all you want to do then is just be part of the culture. You want to, you want to fit into the LA art world. And so you just make the kind of, you can make the kind of superficial and schlock work because you want to make it professionally. But that too is problematic. That too is responding in a way that is, is a burden to fit into the LA art world or something of that nature, rather than to decide who you are as a human being, making decisions about what kind of artist you want to be, seems to me to be more of a faithful theological approach to what it means to be a Christian and to be able to be, to be, to have that the freedom to be able to do that. And maybe the work that you'll do will only be seen in church contexts and museums. Free to do that. But then also free to work in realms in which you're participating in a dialogue or a discourse that isn't defined, isn't defined by the church. And both have their challenges and both have their, both have their blessings. Yeah. Yeah. And the more I seem to be learning is that I just, that's all I get anyway, as much as I, like all I can get is a little. I'm thinking about Flannery O'Connor, too. Oh, yeah. There you go. And she did not want to be defined as a Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she wanted her art to to speak for itself. Yeah. And, and her spirituality was part of it, but it was mm-hmm. not the object. Her object yeah. was to perfect the craft. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're profoundly Christian works that are created by artists that are not Christian or not religious at all. It's the, I mean, we're not, we're not talking about the viewers. We bring our own belief system yeah. to anything that we look at. Um, there's probably the single most didactically Christian work in the Birmingham Museum of Art's mo- collection of modern art. It's by a Jewish artist named Abraham Ratner. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. and it's a crucifix being swallowed by a demon and he used Christian imagery because it was painted in 1942 in the midst of the Second World War. And in fact, there is a big museum exhibition at the Birmingham um, that's focusing on Jesus yeah. as he's represented through the ages. One of the great, one of the novels that's had a huge impact on me is a novel by um, Kayan Potak, uh, My Name is Asher Lev, and it's a, it's a story of a boy who grows up in a Hasidic neighborhood um, who realizes Early on, he has the gift of drawing, and he becomes an artist. And it's a real struggle with the Hasidic community, particularly with the Jewish ban on images and all of those things. And he, at a moment, he has an exhibition in, in New York as a as a young man, and he, one of the paintings is a painting of his mother on the cross. He uses the crucifixion, and what he remembers is his mother's pain and agony as she's waiting for her husband to return from Russia. He was going to bring um, Jews back to save them and to provide context for them, homes for them in, in Brooklyn, and just the agony that she bore and the weight that she bore. And the only way that he felt that he could communicate it was to put her on the cross. So the fact that the crucifixion has this powerful um, this powerful resonance even for those who aren't operating within the context of the church and I've, I've often thought that perhaps what the world needs are less Christian artists making the work and more Christians experiencing it Christians who go to museums think about it experience and interpret um, art, music, film that and part of it is, I mean, it's making it, it's being able to take out that, it's being able to take out and to notice what that, that, that shard that's there. The fact that these are really altars to an unknown God, that they are like trying to seek and find something and that it resonates with us because, because we've, we believe we have, found it, but I don't want to say that in the possessive way, but that, but that that's something that can resonate, um, that can resonate with us. Thank you so much. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.